This is Literature Out Loud at Delnavert Museum, The Extrasodes. Uh, so, today I am talking to Dr. Andrew Burke, who is the Associate Professor uh, for the English Department um, at the University of Winnipeg. Uh, welcome and thank you so much for joining us for our second Extrasode. Uh, thanks so much for having me. I'm happy to be here. Great. Uh, I'm excited to talk to you. Uh, this will come out after we've listen to chapters three and four of The Time Machine. So um, for all you people listening, we didn't do this in order. Yes, you are listening to us in the future, I guess. And we are in the past now. <laughs> yes, exactly, our time travel is appropriate. Um, so we are time traveling. But uh, so we're gonna be talking about a few different things. We don't wanna deliver any spoilers. Um, so, first question I want to ask you is um, can you talk a little bit about the appearance of the machine that the time traveler creates and rides into the future? What does it uh, look like and and um, what can you tell us about it? By the cinematic adaptations of it, especially the 1961. Oh. So it's almost as if I have to like shake loose that cinematic influence on how I picture it. But I'm not going to entirely shake it loose because I kind of like how uh, the 1960s versions um, imagines it. Uh, so I did do my due diligence and I went back and looked uh, at the chapters where it's introduced uh, to see exactly what Wells says. But still stuck in my head is the kind of slay-like time machine that's in the 1960s version that has like amazing levers because levers are a key part of all this and kind of like the machine aesthetic uh, that that was, uh, perfectly articulates uh, but then also uh, the kind of like key detail I think of the description <laughs> is he describes it as having a saddle uh, which is so great, uh, just in terms of like, on one hand, it has this connection to, I don't know, horse riding or something like that, but then also slaves. But I can't help but think when I hear the term saddle uh, about bicycles uh, and sort of the um, neat coexistence uh, in the 1890s uh, of sort of the uh, rise of science fiction and sort of the Wellsian science fiction and the rise of the bicycle as well. Mm -hmm. And in my heart of hearts, I kind of wish the time machine looked a little bit more like a bicycle, uh, just because it's almost as if uh, they seem like, uh, I, I don't know, it would be a neat synergy or a neat cro 1890s crossover to have it that way. Uh, but as I said, sort of it's it's much more sort of influenced in my mind, at least by uh, the, the film version from 1960s, where it very clearly is some kind of uh, a modified sleigh uh, with a spinning disc on back with nice levers at the front and a cool odometer that will tell him exactly where uh, in time he's gonna land. Wow. Uh, the other super interesting thing um, from the book itself is uh, Wells mentioned some of the component parts of the time machine uh, in terms of ivory and mm -hmm. nickel uh, and courts uh, and, and things like that. And that's, that's, just, that's just interesting to me because even though this is a work of science fiction um, that uh, the, the main uh, 
the main episodes of the novel that are set in the 1890s are in this sitting room where these men get together to talk uh, science and philosophy and whatnot. There is always that connection to the world outside and that connection to the colonies, the connection to these kind of mineral extractions that make something like machine making possible, right? So there's a whole Victorian empire behind uh, this time machine that is there in its its smallest details and its smallest component parts. Uh, and that's a kind of fascinating little detail too. Yeah, that's really interesting. I didn't even um, consider that being kind of a big part of how the time machine was was created is using these materials that they wouldn't have had in Britain, but yeah. would be, yeah, it's kind of a, and the, uh, the colonial aspect yeah, the yeah. Machine. <laughs> I have to say too, sort of like my favorite part is, uh, especially with the opening, is that we get the time machine, but we get like a miniature time machine first. Like I'm going to show you this very small model of the time machine, but don't worry, I already have it made. Right? It isn't the model because it isn't. It's not some kind of like small scale prototype or something he's going to build later. It's it's already back there. Like uh, the model as well. Yeah. So, I mean, the model is part of the way that uh, Wells sets up the plot in terms of doing this little experiment to show the uh, kind of disbelief in, uh, in, in the time travel's uh, uh, interlocutors in the room. But uh, so it plays a key part in that. But I do like that brief uh, delay in the actual introduction of the full scale proper uh, time machine as well. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Um, cool. Well, it makes me want to go and look at some of those, some pictures from the 1960s um, adaptation and uh, check out that time machine. Um, yeah, I mean, it's always a question of like with science fiction, how, what, what shape do time machines take? And inevitably it is going to be uh, in coordination with or even parasitic on the technologies of the time uh, or even the the, the, the transportation uh, modes of the time or the conveyances of the time. Uh, so of course, of course, in Back to the Future, you have it as a DeLorean, yeah. uh, you know, <laughs> uh, and at other times it may take other uh, forms and shapes uh, because you can always see the authors or the filmmakers wrestle with, okay, if I'm gonna think about a time machine, I'm going to work with uh, the the kind of like image vocabulary or machine vocabulary of the moment that I'm living in, but I'm going to <laughs> I'm go I'm going to I'm going to make it fancier. Yeah. So that's that's why I like the idea of the Wells time machines being a slightly juiced up sleigh. Yeah, juiced up sleigh. <laughs> um, it's interesting. I, I wonder if it has anything to do with. Uh, how you one might tr actually travel to time through time taking like a an act a transportation vehicle if that would even work not that time yeah, like i don't know if time travel would work but you know what i mean totally this idea that like i suppose that okay uh, even it's there in the first chapter talking about the four dimensions right mm -hmm. if somehow the spatial dimensions are comprehensible in terms of beginning to understand whether via bicycle, sleigh, train, or balloon, how to go back and forth and up and down. Yeah. Uh, sort of what do we do with this fourth dimension of time and how do we travel through that? And the solution often is, well, I, I guess it's going to be something kind of similar to how we travel through the other three dimensions. So maybe 
maybe a sleigh. Yeah. <laughs> like it's the, the other thing sort of that I always remember from um, the film is that it's, it's set around um, the new year, which I mean is appropriate if you're gonna have this thing around time, uh, have it so that it is at, at, at the change of the year. I, actually in the film, uh, it's at the change of the, of, of the millennium. It's 1899 going into 1900. Yeah. So uh, it is snowing outside and stuff. So the sleigh seems appropriate in that way too. Yeah. Yeah, you would need it anyway, because it's cold. Yeah. yeah, for sure. <laughs> and just in case there's snow where you're going. Yeah, no, if there's snow in like, uh, what is it, 802-701, it's like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> It'd be perfect. <laughs> uh, so what we're learning now is that the Victorians were very inventive. Um, yeah. And uh, when we think about um, actual machines that Victorians created and used, uh, what comes to your mind? Oh wow, that's a that's a that's an interesting question. I guess, like on one hand, I mean, since I do uh, work a lot on on film and television, I think of screen technologies mm -hmm. and reproduction image reproduction technologies. So, undoubtedly, like the Victorian inventiveness in terms of creating uh, technologies, uh, apparatuses uh, that can, you know, replicate or reproduce uh, an, an image reality is extraordinary. And I mean, uh, certainly the cinematograph, uh, sort of uh, thinking about that as a late 19th century invention, mm -hmm. uh, that was very quickly uh, imported and adopted into, into England, uh, into the UK more generally, is sort of is, uh, a super interesting one, uh, just in terms of like my favorite nineteenth-century one. Whether you think about it, as that... is just quickly in case somebody doesn't know. What that oh, the, the film camera, the film, the cam film camera. Okay. Yeah, but of course, I mean, none of these things come out of nowhere. Uh, if you see what I mean, just in the sense of there's a whole set of. Um, uh, image making technologies from the magic lantern to the camera obscura that come before the cinematograph or the bioscope or what other whatever other uh, moving image technology that is there in the 19th century as well so thinking about that as like just this incredible long era both within uh within the uk or within england and beyond it of thinking about how uh, technology could be harnessed to create machines that would allow for uh, the reproduction of an image reality. Uh, it just blows my mind. So that's on one hand, that's that's like that's that's my go-to answer. Sort of, I'm always amazed by 19th century inventiveness in that regard, and specific kind of like Victorian inventors within the UK who um, are part of that series of. Um, uh, image experimentations. Uh, but also sort of like, I also like to think about technologies in the bigger sense as well, uh, thinking about the machines that enabled the Victorians to do big infrastructural <laughs> projects, uh, whether it is tunneling underground uh, to, to devise uh, like a, a sewerage system, say from the 1850s or 1860s, mm -hmm. or even like uh, we think about it as distant from today, but if we think even about what we're doing now with Zoom, everything that we're doing right now, having this conversation online, 
relies on undersea cables and the Victorians were at the very forefront of developing ways to lay undersea cables for them, for telegraphic communication in order to make uh, this kind of at a distance communication uh, possible. So even though maybe that isn't kind of machine machine as in the same as a, a film camera or a cinematograph, it is part of Victorian technology that I think is totally fascinating because it has such a still tangible um, kind of impact on how we live our own contemporary technological lives. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, yeah, all that, uh, how we communicate and wanting to communicate with um, far reaching places and now communicating through time through with the time machine and everything. Yeah, that's, um, yeah. yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Just think about all the ways in which the Victorians um, developed technologies from the train to the telegraph that sort of um, sought to transform the experience of space and time, being able to send messages with relatively instantaneously, yeah, <laughs> you know, <yeah. laughs> uh, as well as being able to travel distances, which completely transformed kind of understandings of geog geography and proximity, right? Mm. It's like, wow, as soon as you can uh, take a train, it's like the world, the world is fundamentally different. Yeah. So, yeah. so faster, faster than horse travel. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, wow. Yeah. And so apart from the, the film camera and um, undersea cables, undersea, underground. <laughs> no, I, don't go with undersea. I think undersea there's actually, there's even, there's even a book uh, very recently called The Undersea Network. So oh, well, okay. undersea is exactly the right term. Okay. Um, um, do you have, so what would be, what is your favorite Victorian machine? And it could be an imagined one, like something from from a film, say it was, I guess you could say the 1960s time machine, if you want it. I would, like on one hand, I have to be loyal and say, oh, it's still my favorite sort of 19th century machine remains the film camera or the film projector. Sure, that blows everything out of the water just because yeah. I think it completely transforms everything thereafter. And a total shout out to the camera as well, thinking about the history of, uh, Victorian photography is totally fascinating just in terms of uh, not simply the ways it was used in a documentary sense, but in an aesthetic sense as well, how quickly uh, that was, but then also in an everyday sense too, allowing people to uh, see themselves or to retain mm. images of, uh, of themselves is uh, totally uh, incredible when you think about it, just in terms of going from from painting to photography, from sure. uh, one kind of stabilization of the image to to another is fascinating. But I suppose that's a kind of cheating because already. Well, I think I'll accept it because what a what an amazing thing! I still uh, I am I am I think I am in agreement with you. It's just an amazing uh, thing to have. Like we have little cameras now in our pockets and take videos every day of of things that we want to retain yeah. and like there there was a time when you couldn't do that and there was no option to do that yeah and i mean somehow it seems appropriate as well just because the lumiere brothers in france sort of have their first uh, uh screen projection um, 
uh, film exhibition in 1895 as well. So it perfectly coincides with the time machine. So somehow the time machine is very timely uh, in the sense of it arrives and participates in this moment where you have uh, technologies and machines fundamentally reorganizing the experience of time and space, right? What is film other than a machine for um, a, mach a machine for time travel, right? All of a sudden you have the ability to record and preserve uh, images that you can subsequently project somewhere else. Mm -hmm. uh, they literally move in time and space. Uh, so it's kind of it's it's kind of it's kind of brilliant in that way, um, but then also uh, like I, I always like to think of um, communication and transportation technologies as the same thing. I've already showed it out the train, uh, just in terms of how incredible uh, a Victorian uh, technology that is. The uh, growth and expansion of something like the railway network. I've already showed it with the bicycle as well, just yeah. in terms of how that transforms uh, space and time, especially urban space and time. Uh, thinking about um, thinking about late 19th century, the late 19th century London uh, that, that Wells was familiar with. Mm -hmm. uh, so those kinds of technologies are, are too. I guess the last thing maybe to bring up is like, I don't know, the system of public transit and stuff, like thinking yeah. about trams, whether horse-drawn or other electric, thinking about the ways in which those uh, fundamentally reorganize our experience of the everyday world. I mean, the time machine is about time travel, and it is this incredible um, novelistic uh, philosophical experiment to think through some of the ramifications or the consequences of this, should it be invented uh, in terms of uh, thinking about society, thinking about politics, thinking about gender relations, thinking about all of these things. Um, but it, 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 doesn't, it doesn't come out of nowhere. It's not a pure thought experiment. It comes out of a society and a culture that was already kind of in the midst of um, experiencing time and space uh, differently. Wells is just able to, again, harness that and create a fiction to uh, push the thought experiment far further uh, to think about it in a much larger uh, scale going forward, I guess, to 802.701. This almost like impossibly unimaginable distant point in the future. Yeah, it's quite a long, long time. It wasn't just a little bit into the future. It's very far. <laughs> yeah, no, sort of like a lot of science fiction is like totally modest in terms of like, oh, I'll, I'll think of like 1952 or something, yeah. <laughs> but no, or like the year 2500, but Wells was having none of that. He was like way forward. Going for it, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, so you're talking about society and uh, being in the midst of these changes and new inventions and stuff and um, new technologies. So uh, what can you tell us about, about how people responded to these things? So we know how Wells responded, um, but uh, society in general, the the um, advent of the of the film camera, like how how is the reception of these these kinds of technologies? I, I, like that's I, I think that's a super interesting question, just in terms of uh, just from attendance <laughs> and the desire to go to these exhibitions. I think we can have we have a historical record of an enthusiasm for these new types of technology. Uh, that are at once part of um, 
or very quickly uh, become part of an entertainment industry, <laughs> uh, but then also sort of have this relationship to actualities and participate in just allowing people to see things that hitherto they wouldn't have been able to see, right? So there's, there's all of this. I, I, I don't know, I always tend towards cliche in answering this type of question and, and end up saying something like, uh, well, surely it's a mix of optimism and apprehension sort of anytime new technological things are introduced. Uh, just in the sense of you can see, and surely they saw some of the possibilities uh, of how it would uh, transform or even improve uh, everyday life uh, in the Victorian period. Uh, but at the same time, uh, presumably as well, as with many technologies today, there's an apprehension about whether these changes are going to be positive changes, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so you have that in the uh, immediate circumstance, right, where you have moral panics about the introduction of new technologies. And again, so I'll go back to the bicycle example, the, more, the moral panic about ladies having bicycles and whatnot and how that will affect everything is part of the reaction and relationship to the introduction of new technologies. Um, but then what Wells does in the time machine is like in, in an incredible way, just elongate that kind of thinking about, well, what are the long-term ramifications of um, these, the introduction of these kinds of technologies, but then also of the, the society that was forming around and because of them, right? Mm -hmm. if, um, uh, if, if the time machine, I don't think this is a spoiler, if the time machine is a, uh, is a, is a piece of fiction that engages uh, in a very profound way with the key political uh, debates and dilemmas of the day, especially in relation to labor relations. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you can see how Wells is thinking through this uh, in terms of how that uh, organizes itself around uh, technologies and machines, uh, but then also in thinking about how technologies and machines uh, give shape to and participate in uh, the, the society uh, that, that, that surrounds them. And the time machine becomes this thought experiment, this incredible thought experiment yeah. in thinking about the, the very, very, very long-term uh, kind of consequences and ramifications of this. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, we'll get there. We'll get there in the novel. <laughs> You'll see. <laughs> yeah, I, I did my best not to do any spoilers there. So. No, you did great. You did great. <laughs> I I coached it in the vaguest terms possible. Yeah, I think it'll just make people super interested in, in keeping on listening. Yeah, they'll know it's coming up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, we were avoiding spoilers, which is great. We're doing a good job. Like you were saying with people's reactions to technology and stuff, would you say overall um, in your um, experience with the working in the 19th century, working in the 19th century? No, your work in, in the 19th century. <laughs> you, you time travel, right? <laughs> I don't know. It's, it's hard with as soon as you read Wells and as soon as you read the time machine, prepositions become very, very oh, difficult yeah. in, on, through. <laughs> There's a way in which we're still working through the 19th century as well, just in terms of like a lot of the stuff that Wells brings up sort of remain like tangible political questions too about society and about how we think about the future uh, as well. And about how we live our lives in the present in anticipation of an imagined future too, right? So yeah, yeah. So, so yeah. 
yeah. in on four will accept and through will accept oh, all of them. Okay, great. <laughs> so with that in mind, were the Victorians um, in general pessimistic or are optimistic about the future? Were they excited for um, for all these new things, or were they? I guess it could be it could be both things because there's yeah. No, you, you've totally anticipated the answer, which is like, I don't know, a little from column A, a little from column B, right? Yeah. Uh, it was probably very like uh, person to person, group to group, social milieu to social milieu, class to class, mm -hmm. you know, uh, all these things. Like there isn't necessarily one homogenous experience of uh, a relationship to the future. I'm sure it was mixed. I mean, the thing, <laughs> if, yeah, no, if, if they're not mixed, they're not feelings, right? And I'm sure they had mixed feelings uh, about all these things. But I mean, I think we can probably say a few things. Uh, certainly, mm -hmm. Wells is uh, at the literary forefront uh, and uh, whatnot of thinking about the future. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think one thing that we can definitely say about the late 19th century, especially, is that it's an era that was incredibly invested in thinking about the future right whether optimistically or pessimistically it is uh still i think important just to have that um uh future oriented kind of mode of philosophical reckoning and thought happening and a lot of it comes out of like political desire to change the world so if you want to um enact or promote a political program of some sort sort of why you you have to have some vision of, of a desired future uh, towards which your, your program might might lead or might aspire to, right? So you do get that a little bit in Wells uh, throughout his work, not just in the time machine, trying to imagine the future he himself desires. Um, but then the, the verso to that recto is always like, uh, it, it can go dark very quickly as well. Sort of like the inevitable companion of utopian thinking uh, ends up being dystopian thinking, mm -hmm. right? Uh, or how one can collapse into another. Sort of if you sketch out a utopian vision, uh, how quickly can it sort of uh, flip somehow and become something quite, it's quite terrible or how, how quickly it can become something that is not desired rather than desired. Right. So I think in a way that that's that's the oblique answer to the question, sort of the super interesting thing about the Victorians, especially the late Victorians and Wells in particular, is sort of this uh, uh, impulse to to think about this, the future, even compulsion to think about the future um, that kind of drives a lot of his his writing. And surely some of that comes down to the sense of it being the end the end of an era or the end of a point as well so we we ourselves suffered through some millennial anxiety recently so we can probably turn our minds back to the fin de siècle and think about how sort of rather arbitrary kind of calendar sort of turnovers catalyzes or invites this kind of like big political reckoning uh, of what's of what's to come the shape of things to come to steal yeah. the title of another wells things yeah oh, for sure yeah. oh yeah that's a lot it's a lot to think about um so uh, i have a final question uh for you okay. your doctoral work was on the victorian period but you've recently published a book on canadian culture of the 1970s and 80s 
including TV and film culture. Um, it's a shout out to uh, the hinterlands. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <Speaking> it up. <laughs> um, <laughs> but given your experience in film and TV, can I ask you about uh, the Time Machine's screen history? Now, you gave us a little bit with the 1960 yeah. version, but I think it's got it's had a few different um, uh, film companies try to yeah yeah absolutely and it yeah. does have like it does it does have like a media history to it i know that there's a bunch of radio adaptations of it that happened uh, as well but i'm more familiar with the film ones there was a late 1941 in the very early days of television actually that the bbc did which i haven't seen i don't even know if it survives actually but the canonical one is the 1960 uh version that already mentioned uh, which was directed by George Powell, who was a Hungarian emigre, worked first in the UK, uh, but then went to Hollywood uh, and was involved in the production of an adaptation of War of the Worlds uh, in 1953. So he was already familiar uh, with, with Wells uh, by the time he gets to the production of um, The Time Machine in 1960. Uh, and he, uh, he, was, he was known for and an expert in uh, animation and stop motion animation. Uh, throughout the 1940s, he made a bunch of films that relied uh, entirely on that. So you get some of that in the um, film of the time machine, particularly in um, the time travel sequences themselves. Sort of what he'll do is have all these optical effects and animation uh, effects that allow us to try to imagine the sensory experience of something like time travel. And I think Wells does like a great job in uh, the work of fiction to describe that in prose on the page to get a sense of how disorienting uh, something like time travel would be uh, just in terms of the sensory uh, and bodily experience of it. Uh, what what Powell was able to do was to give that a kind of real visual force uh, through these animation techniques that he uh, had developed sort of in his earlier work. So that's the first fascinating thing. But the 60s or the 1960 version of The Time Machine, I think is, is uh, totally fascinating because it is, it comes at a particular point in Hollywood production where it's, it's a nice kind of technicolor Saturday matinee film. <laughs> uh, it's a rip-roaring time travel adventure uh, in a way. And I can't give too much away from the end of the novel or where it goes and kind of the action sequences that come up uh, later in the novel. But even in the early parts, uh, it really indulges in the kind of like campy lushness mm -hmm. uh, the recreation of the Victorian scenes and particularly uh, the discussion the men have around dinner, imagining these Victorian types having this discussion, whether it's the amateur botanist or whether it's the newspaper editor or whether it's the gentleman scientist like mm -hmm. the Triumph Club herself. So there's a kind of real satisfying Hollywood <laughs> uh, representation of the late Victorian period in, in that. Um, but then also sort of with the unveiling of the time machine itself, it's meant to be this scene of, of, of kind of real of wonder and fascination, right? That scene from the vantage point of the 1960s, a much, a much later age, but you can really see the effort of the film both to uh, create a kind of like period specific 
1890s <laughs> uh, kind of like adaptation of the time machine, but one that um, comes from the vantage point of the 1960s, knowing that in a lot of ways, uh, what Wells was writing about in the 1890s has unfolded very differently. And one of the things that the film does uh, instead of having the time traveler go straight to 802701, <laughs> uh, the, the impossibly distant future, is he experiments a little bit with the time machine itself, landing first, I think, in 1917, uh, where he's horrified that World War One uh, is going on, uh, and just, I mean, just obviously landing within the trauma of the Great War itself, uh, but then also sort of uh, landing, at, I think, in 1944, uh, as well. Um, so into World War II and sort of the, the air raid sirens and having to go into the underground uh, from, from the, the, the bombings of London. Uh, and then has, uh, even though it's a 1960 film, has the time traveler land in 1966, where there's also uh, sirens because there's an imminent imminent, uh, now I feel as if I'm giving spoilers from the film, because there's an imminent nuclear attack right? Oh, yeah. So, I mean, there's kind of interesting things the film does that isn't, strictly speaking, um, uh, it, it isn't fidelity to what Wells wrote, mm -hmm. but it is an effort to try to, uh, to, to rewrite Wells in a way that's sympathetic to some of the thought experiments that Wells was obviously engaged in. The other weird thing about the 1960 version is that the time traveler is played by Rod Taylor, who went on to be the the main guy in the Birds, uh, the Hitchcock film, just a few oh. years later. So yeah. whenever I when I see the time traveler, and I watched it again very recently after I have not having seen it since I was a child, was oh yeah, that's that's Mitch from the Birds. Yeah. Oh, wow. <laughs> he, he's like uh, it's I don't know if when when you're reading the novel you imagine the time traveler as a kind of um, hunky but harmless 60s matinee star. Yeah. <laughs> but that's no. that's kind of how it is with Rod Taylor in the okay. 60, 1960 adaptation of The Time Machine. Yeah. There is a more recent adaptation of The Time Machine too from mm -hmm. 2002, which I think was directed by Wells's grandson, uh, along with Gore Verbinski. They might've co-directed it or something. And it has Guy Pierce, the Australian actor as the time traveler. Um, but that version is not very good. It's not good. No. Okay. I, I yeah. Pretty watch that. <laughs> yeah. No, I would say sort of like somehow the 1960 version, even though you know it's a bit, it's a bit campy and corny in places, and it goes in some weird directions in terms of solving things later on, okay. uh, in subsequent chapters that we won't talk about. Nevertheless it is still the most interesting of, of the adaptations, I think. What are, what are they getting so wrong? Like, what would, what would be a really, I guess I, this is um, a question that, that maybe cannot be answered, but what would be the best version of, a time, of the Time Machine movie? I don't know, what, are, what, is, what is the biggest problem? This is maybe um, a question for the end of, of the novel. But what is the biggest problem with with moving it to to film? Oh, you know, every everybody reading at home as they get in later chapters, I think they'll readily see um, the problems with 
how to adapt this to something like a live action feature, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. I'll just leave it vague such as that. But I'll also say sort of um, maybe the other obstacle that Hollywood faces in adapting something like the time machine is the problem of the problem of a love interest, <laughs> right? How, how do you, Hollywood needs for its male protagonists to have a viable and on-screen uh, kind of uh, romance or romance kind of yeah. thing going on. And there's certain ways in which the, the, the way the plot of the time machine unfolds makes that kind of hard to do. Mm -hmm. Uh, so yeah, it's vague. I've always thought like there could be a great animated version of the time machine. It's almost, it calls out for a Studio Ghibli Japanese kind of anime adaptation of it that has like a real kind of, because I mean, there's ways in which late Victorian aesthetics and steampunk and whatnot is all over uh, Japanese anime already and Studio Ghibli productions. So there's a real kind of compatibility on that level between the two of them, but then also I think just in terms of like the um, representational possibilities in animation. And I mean, Powell was partially there because he's using stop action animation in his yeah. version of it. Um, but um, how, how it could be done with drawn animation or computered animation uh, is, is a real possibility too. So even though there have been sort of screen adaptations of the time machine already, maybe we're still waiting for the one in the future that will be the one right it is a kind of time machine premise to imagine that that's still to come yeah yeah the, the best one is still to come yeah I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah i like that studio ghibli i think i can already see it happening yeah 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 um, i want it to happen now that i've mentioned it <laughs> <laughs> well pitch it you'll have to send a yeah. pitch I think I have my elevator pitch ready to go. Right. I was just practicing on you right now. Yeah, exactly. Sold. <laughs> yeah, <Here's> good. <laughs> um, so is there anything else that I'm, I'm missing? Uh, is there something um, you'd like to say about the time machine um, through the lens that you look at it in that Can I haven't I, asked? Like, let me, let me just say, I often teach a science fiction course and like my default teachable in that has been War of the Worlds because the War of the Worlds is it's a great Wells novel it's it's like there's so many details in there that give the students and every time I read it I see them uh, and learn about them as learn about them again as well sort of small details that give you profound insights into the everyday life of like late Victorian or turn of the century culture, uh, but then also of the social, political and philosophical dimensions of the time that Wells was living in. So it's a very satisfying novel uh, to teach uh, because of that. And also because of the science fiction scenario that it presents has been everywhere taken up. Um, but now having just read The Time Machine, uh, like recently, like uh, to prepare for this, really, uh, I'm I'm sold on that too. Like it is, it's it's such a rich uh, uh, piece of fiction, just in terms of um, like providing insight into the historical period in which it was written, um, but also very much setting the table for a whole raft of science fictions to come. Right, I'm sure you're reading it 
like you're seeing, oh, that's where that trope comes from, or that's where that convention comes from, or that uh, that turns up again here. I, I've already mentioned Back to the Future, but if you even just think about sort of the whole range of time travel um, fictions, uh, even screen fictions, uh, all of them have their debt to Wells, uh, not only in terms of uh, solving the dilemma of how to represent the machine uh, and solving the dilemma of how to represent the actual transport through time, um, but then also uh, in terms of what it allows you to do, uh, right, as an author or as a director or as a screenwriter, mm -hmm. sort of in terms of thinking about and using the genre to think about the period in which you're living, but then also to uh, speculate on, on, on a future to come. Right. And a future to come that isn't just going to come because it comes, but because there's a potential there for it to be shaped in some way positively um, by the things you do in the present or the, the decisions you make in the present, whether as an individual or collectively uh, as a society. So uh, it's a very I, I'm a, it's it's made me question my default <laughs> sort of science fiction. Test. Should I always be teaching more of the worlds? Uh, or should I be teaching the time machine? Because it just offers uh, a few different things than War of the Worlds in terms of the, the questions that it raises, uh, both in terms of the history of the genre, uh, but then also about the relationship between the genre of science fiction and, um, and, and, and culture and society. Yeah, you make a great, um, a great case for it. So maybe you'll have to look at. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm, I'm convincing myself. So yeah. <laughs> I have to make a strong case to convince convince myself. War of the Worlds <laughs> is great. We did um, a radio uh, version of it at Downavert last year for Halloween. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. But you know, you know how great that is too yeah. in a slightly different way. But it's and this and Time Machine is different. It's it's um, there's no aliens coming. It's all it's all yeah. based in the world and so. Yeah. Yeah, and in its own way has been sort of so rich in terms of like variants and remakes and sort of just using the time machine premise to 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 think through different things. Yeah, 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 yeah. We yeah, get yeah, that yeah. because of because of Wells. And so yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. Really, just foundational in so many ways. Mm, fantastic. Yeah, yeah cool. it's amazing. Um, I I wasn't I didn't know the time machine and. Um, now I'm, I'm, I'm hooked. <laughs> I'm hooked on it. Yeah, no, no, it is, and it's, it's additionally sort of like as much as I love the long Victorian novel, there's something very satisfying about something that you can read in a sitting, right? Yes. Uh, just because it has you, it has you from the beginning, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. And it is something that, that, that once you're once you're immersed in it, you just you want to keep going. Yeah, gotta find yeah. out what's that feature yeah. like. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, well, thank you so much for talking uh, to me today. It was very fascinating, and thank you for sharing all of your expertise and, and ideas with us. No problem. It was a pleasure to talk to you and talk to a little bit about machines uh, and about the time machine in particular. And, you know, I, I'm no Wells expert, but I'm, I, I'm a Wells enthusiast, right? It is interesting to read what he's written and to, I think even for 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 everyday readers like the questions that he raises are are just fascinating and kind of still with us all right so, so much
Thank you. Okay.